And for our scripture reading this morning, we'll continue in the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and we'll read the verses 25 through 35. Last time we considered the first two, three verses from this, and today we'll continue in this section. So Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him? saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. This far the reading of God's word. As I mentioned, we considered last week the first three verses, and I was hoping to finish the chapter today, but again, um, I, can only, I will only be covering from verses 28 through 33 this, after, this morning. So, dear congregation, there's a boy named Charles, and he was committed to following the Lord Jesus. He was born into a home, a Muslim home, and when he was 15, he was already being trained to become an imam. But throughout the days of his life, he met a missionary, and he became converted. And when he finally built up the courage to go tell his father that he believes in the Lord Jesus now and not Muhammad or Allah, his father became so angry, he jumped on him, dragged him to the bathroom, and called for his wife to bring the kitchen knife, and he was going to kill his son right there and then. But realizing that was not allowed in, in Kenya, they locked him up in the house for a, num for a number of weeks, and then finally let him go. And the son, wanting to reconcile with his father, he, he asked to meet with his father, so his father met with him. But his father poisoned his coffee and tried to kill him again. Later, he was uh, captured by family members, and he was taken to the bush. He was tortured for a week and beaten so badly they left him for dead. And after he survived again, they again 
captured him, but in the end they gave up and just threw him on the steps of the church where he worshipped. Four times they tried to kill him. Charles had to bear this painful cross in his life for following Christ. But it was Christ's love for him and his love for Christ that enabled him to endure and to remain totally committed to Christ. He was given the strength to persevere. And in these verses here, that is what the Lord Jesus is saying. In verse 27 he says, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes clear that those who follow Christ must be totally committed to following Him. Those first verses that we considered last week for those who weren't here, where it says we have to hate father and mother in our own life also, that means we have to love God above all. It's a superlative. We must love God above everything in this world. And that means it will cost us whatever conflicts with God. And in this case, in Charles's case, it was his family. And that's what it means uh, to lose family, to love God more than our family when it comes to the salvation of our soul. And so today we'll consider the second part of this the same theme, total commitment to Christ. Last time we've seen the cost and the ultimatum, the ultimatum given in verse 27. And today we'll consider the rationale, and we'll have to save the purpose for next week. So today, the rationale, the rationale for total commitment to Christ. And here the Lord Jesus, in these verses, He uses two illustrations to demonstrate His rationale for teaching us to count the cost, for the cost of following Him. And the first example we see is the example of counting the cost of building a tower. In verse 28, it says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost of whether he has enough to finish it? Any builder, especially if you're going to build a tower, which is a huge undertaking, will sit down and carefully count the cost. It's a wise thing to do. A tower would require a proper design, a proper foundation, proper building materials, and an adequate ability to to construct it. And so this is the logical, the sensible thing to do because of the scale of the project. And Jesus means by this, and he's saying that we must, it is wise, it is the right thing to do to carefully count the cost of what's involved in following him. See, a tower is not the same as just building a little summer cabin or a playhouse. But this is a lifetime investment. Following Christ is not just an an addition to our life, something we just add on to the side of our life. But following Christ is a lifetime investment. And so do we have what it takes? Have we sat down and carefully counted the cost? As we considered last week, verses 26 and 27 show that it requires self-denial. It requires taking up the cross. To build a tower with a lifetime investment means you can't spend your money on other things. Are we prepared to deny our other interests for Christ? Even when 
these earlier verses, and also Luke 21, verse 16, says, you will be betrayed by relatives, you'll be hated by all for Christ's sake. It'll cost you your sins. You cannot follow Christ and follow your sins, but our sins must be put to death. Are we prepared then to part with those sins, those bosom sins that we, those loves and lusts of the world? When we realize anything is contrary to God's Word and will, will we sever them from us? Do we realize it will cost us our self-righteousness, any of our own ability to try and merit our way into heaven, that we have to give up everything of ourselves and submit ourselves entirely to Christ? The tower itself has to be built on a proper foundation, and certainly eternal life must be built on the foundation of Christ. Can we deny ourselves and rest alone in Christ Jesus by faith? And he says we need to consider the consequences of not being able to finish. He continues in verse 29, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build or was not able to finish. In Matthew 10, verse 22, there's a parallel passage. It says, You'll be hated of all men for my namesake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. The intention of every builder, of course, is to finish the building, to finish the tower. Everyone who starts off in the Christian life wants to finish. They want to enter heaven, to finish with eternal life. But the Lord Jesus is pointing out the fact that not everyone who begins will finish. There are some who turn away when the cost becomes too great. And an unfinished building looks worse than if it had never been started. The time, the materials have all been wasted the half-empty building sits there, half-finished building sits there empty, it's unusable, and whatever is there begins to decay, to, to, to break down in the weather. And so 2 Peter 2 verse 21 says, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would be, have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from it. They become the laughing stock of the world. Many will mock and say, look, they trusted Christ, but now look where they are. They were not able to finish. So what is the Lord Jesus saying? He's not, he's not hiding the reality of the Christian life. And that is why he had to turn and face his followers, the great multitudes that followed him, and, and tell them, <coughs> excuse me, tell them, that we must count the cost. <coughs> He's warning against the superficial following. <coughs> Empty religion will bring harm and disgrace to the name of Christ. And if we do not count the cost, will we turn away when the trials do come? Will we backslide into the temptations when, when, when we are faced with them? If we're not prepared to give up the price, <clears throat> to pay the price of giving up our sins. 
Will we grow cold in our love and zeal for Christ when we see what we have to face? But it is true that we cannot literally count this cost beforehand. And unlike the building, building of a tower, counting the cost is not just done once at the beginning before you start the project. Because we don't know what trials we will be called to face or what temptations we will face in our life. We cannot tell <coughs> excuse me. We cannot tell if we'll be able to stand or if like Peter we'll come to a point where we will fall. But we will all face challenges and our faith will be tested. But what Jesus is saying is we must be ready for that. Ready to face any cost. We must be aware of what we must expect in this world. And what it should then make us realize is that we don't have what it takes. See, a builder can count his money and say yes or no. But when we start counting the cost, we realize we are bankrupt already. We don't have the strength to bear this cross. None of us can say that we are willing to go through what Charles faced. None of us can say we have enough strength and power to do that. We don't have the power to leave all and follow Christ. Peter thought he did, and the Lord showed him that he didn't. So this is a tower that we cannot build. But in Christ is found everything that you will need. He is that foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is the author. He is the finisher of your faith. And Romans 8 says that in Christ, God freely gives us all things. And so, yes, with our, in ourselves, we don't have it. But in Christ, He gives everything that is needed. And when Jesus is teaching us to count the cost, He is asking you this. Have you already lost everything so that you can gain everything in Christ? Are you following Christ not for what little add-on you can get to your life, but because you have seen that you are totally bankrupt? Are you following Christ because everything that we can bring is only a liability and not an asset to our eternal life? But if you have Christ, you have everything, and you have more than enough. If your hope and life are found in, in Christ alone, then there's no reason for anyone to mock. Because then even if you have to go through what Charles had to go through by grace, you will, they will see this tower come to completion to the glory of God. And his family would have had to acknowledge that they could not turn him away from Christ anymore. And your salvation is then secured in Christ because Christ himself became the laughing stock of this world in your place. He was laughed to scorn, it says many times. He was mocked on the cross when they said he trusted in God. See if he will save him now. And so Christ died so that you could live. And though you will have to face the cost in your own life, and though these costs may be painful, they are only temporal costs. And in the light of eternity, they are insignificant. 
Christ has paid a far greater cost when He paid for your sins. Because that's a cost we truly could never bear. But by the grace and the Spirit of God, He gives you the strength now to bear these temporal losses. Because He has borne for you that eternal cost. And so Matthew 20, 10 verse 22 again says, He who endures to the end will be saved, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the first example the Lord Jesus gives. The second is the example of facing the enemy. If you read with me in verse 31, it says, Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. No one will charge into war without considering what is involved. But Jesus is using this to show us the impossibility of the situation that we are up against. When we see the high cost of building a tower, we would just say, well, I don't want to start. Christians might be tempted to try to remain neutral in this world and to try to live at peace with everyone to avoid such high costs. But with this next example, the Lord Jesus is showing that we cannot remain neutral. We cannot remain neutral in this world because the enemy is coming towards us. And we must do something. And so he says, consider. So we must consider first that the Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. It's not simply sitting in the bleachers and watching somebody else fight in the ring. Every Christian is engaged in this battle, if you realize it or not, young and old. And the enemy is coming against you. And if we look at the enemies of our souls and we try to count them, we realize we are greatly outnumbered and overpowered on this earth. And our natural reaction is to shy away from any war or conflict. And we look for ways to try to make peace. But if we come to follow Christ, He is saying, do you consider that there is a warfare involved? If we follow Christ as our King, do we realize that Satan is our enemy? And are we able to conquer him with what we have when he comes against us? Or where are we going to look for help in this battle? Like this King who is outnumbered two to one, we need to sit down and consider if we are able to defeat the enemy who comes against us. Our enemy is the prince of darkness. He comes with the world that he employs. And we have our own sinful nature, our sins rising up against us. It's often called the three-headed enemy. Satan, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if he comes with that purpose to destroy and to devour, he won't be coming with only a few soldiers. He'll be coming with an army large enough that he thinks 
it was sufficient to overcome us. And like with the tower, we know that we have to acknowledge that we are bankrupt. Here we have to acknowledge that we have no power against this enemy. But then we also must consider that even though we are outnumbered, we must consider in whose strength we do fight. If we come after Christ, are we following Him because we acknowledge that all our help and all our hope and all our life is found in Him alone? Because then Jesus says in in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Christ has already destroyed the devil who had the power of death. Christ, through his own death and resurrection, gained that victory. And now we have to consider Christ, who is that captain of our salvation, who leads us into this battle, that he is the stronger one who 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 has overcome Satan. We have to consider the promises that He gives you that with His Holy Spirit He will always be there with you, never to leave you nor to forsake you, but to equip you and empower you for all that is needed. And though your enemy comes against you with the double army, God provides you, His people, with that infinite and inexhaustible resources in Christ. So we have to consider our own weakness and our own helplessness that if we try to fight this battle in our own strength, like Peter said, that he was ready to face it, then we will lose. But through Christ, Paul says you are more than conquerors. But it still remains that in this world you will have tribulation. And yes, we want the victory, but are we willing to fight. And the thought of living in a beautiful tower is appealing, but can we afford it? The thought of heaven is appealing, but will the fierceness of this battle cause us to turn back? You can think of the Israelites as a perfect example as they came to the borders of Canaan the first time. And the spies came back with the reports that the land was filled with strong cities and even giants, and the Lord said, go and fight them. And they became afraid, and because of unbelief, they could not enter. We are outnumbered on this earth. We notice very clearly in our own day that evil is rising up against the church, it seems, in every land in so many different ways, so many different areas, it seems like the armies are surging up. And not only there, but also the many temptations in this world, have never, it seems like have never been greater in the history of the world. And then how about our own hearts? The world not only comes to tempt us, but the world draws us with all its pleasures. Do we confess that in our own strength we cannot meet this incoming army. But God has showed many times in Scriptures that He uses small armies, weak men, to show the power of God. You think of Gideon, of Samson, of Jonathan, even of David. 
And so our hope and our help is in the name of the Lord. But we must further consider what conditions of peace we might be tempted to give in to. It says here the king sends a delegation to ask for conditions of peace in verse 32. And this implies that there is a way to ask for, for, for conditions of peace with the enemy. But we need to realize that if we make peace with the enemy, we also become the enemy's servants because we have submitted to their demands. The Christian life is a spiritual fight from the beginning to the end. This king seems to want to make peace or at least postpone the fight. But how often do we think we can make peace or at least postpone the fight in this world until a later time? How often, even as young people grow up, they first want to make peace with the enemy in this world, to enjoy this world as long as they can. To say, I will seek Christ later. Rather than fighting the good fight of faith. We must be prepared to meet the enemy lest we compromise and give in or even surrender before we begin to fight. Now the point Jesus is making that is that staying neutral in this battle is not an option. The enemy is coming for you. And he is coming with an army twice the size of yours. And that just means it's figuratively, it's bigger. He has more power. And so we need to consider our, our own self-confidence, our own pride. Do we think that we are able to stand in our own strength? Peter never thought he would fall. So Christ does not want us to be unprepared or to be surprised in this battle to be surprised at the strength, at the subtlety of the wrath, of the, of the, the, the evil of this, of this enemy. He will come with temptations to sin that are stronger than you can bear, stronger than you can resist. And if we spare our lusts instead of mortifying them, we are giving in to conditions of peace allowing any sin to linger in our hearts or in our minds is to give in. And there seems to be a measure of peace, living at peace with the enemy in our hearts. But it will come back. It will strengthen. It will grow and it will attack you in many different areas. You cannot leave sin alive in the hearts. You will be rejected by relatives and hated by all, Christ says. Will we be able to stand against the slander and the reproach of this world? Or will we look for conditions of peace and compromise to avoid this? He will come with his attacks on the truth to bring in subtle changes to the doctrines of God's Word. Many in our country and in our day have already asked for conditions of peace when it comes to redefining marriage and gender. We cannot do that. Many have asked for conditions of peace when it comes to things like creation or other doctrines of God's Word. Compromising God's truth to make peace with the enemy. 
But this is a lifelong battle, and one in which we will grow weary and want to lay down our arms. How are you tempted today, or in this past week, to make peace with the King of this world, rather than standing to fight for the truth? Because peace with the enemy can only come at the expense of God's truth. You cannot follow both. There's no neutral ground. Whenever you give in to any sin, you're making conditions of peace. We're called to strive to enter in. We're called to fight the good fight of faith. Our enemy is a mortal foe who has one goal and one purpose, and that is to destroy souls. We are outnumbered, we are outsmarted, and therefore it must drive us to the one place we can only go, and that is to Christ, the stronger one. To sit down and to consider if you with 10,000 can meet the enemy who's coming with 20,000 means it is to sit down and to consider how you are following Christ. Christ is the one who has overcome this world and Satan. And it is only by His grace and His Holy Spirit that you will be able to take up your cross and engage in this battle. Many followed Jesus only for some temporal gain when He was on this world, and many still do today. But Jesus says there will be a temporal cost for an eternal gain. Therefore, be of good cheer, because He has overcome the world. Do not let this cost deter you or distract you. And then Jesus makes that summary statement there in verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's, he's, he's reinforcing what he says. And for some, this is a literal. It has a literal meaning. Peter said himself in Luke 18, 28, See, we have left all and followed you. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, parents, brothers, wives, children, for the sake of the kingdom, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. But this does not mean that everybody must suddenly go sell everything they have and leave their family. But it means we must be prepared to face the cost if that is what is required of us. If there is a conflict between Christ and our loves in this world, we must choose God above all. Charles had to face this cost early in his life. And we can pray that God would spare us of such pain. But Christ is stating that without an absolute surrender of self, with a total commitment to Christ, it will be hopeless for us to begin to try to follow him. Because it is only in the strength and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that he enables you to do so. And Christ spoke these words as he himself was going where? To the cross, to Jerusalem, where he would be nailed to the wooden cross. So he personally knew the significance of every word he was speaking here. He faced the fiercest battle that this world would ever witness when he fought a Satan there, when he died to destroy the devil on the cross. He counted the cost, but the cost of not going to the cross would be far greater 
Because without his death on the cross, not a single soul could ever be saved. And the same for us. The cost in this life is real. But the end is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he gives us not only as a warning but as an encouragement to find our only strength, our only help, our only hope in him. And these are the examples that he gives for the rationale of why we must count the cost so that we are prepared to face the battle in this life. And so next time we will consider further the last two verses showing the purpose of total commitment to Christ.